And as we look at our passage this morning, we see that Paul's ministry was built on the foundation of being a man that allowed the Lord to order his steps. We ask if you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. That's the book of Acts, chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, Order my step, O Lord. And we ask that you would stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. And the word of God says this. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we sent, we went abroad and set sail. When he, we had come into sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyra. For there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished our voyage to Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemais and greeted the brothers and stayed with them one more day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters, who prophesies. While they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. 
and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we lodged. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. Psalm 46 and 10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This verse comes from a longer section of scripture that is proclaiming the very power and security of God. While there's a threat that the psalmist is facing, he's not mentioning it specifically, but he seems to relate it to the pagan nations and the call of God to end their raging war against them. The whole psalm says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at break of the day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars and cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see, the majority of this psalm is written in the third person, and the psalmist is speaking about God. However, you see God's voice coming through strongly in verse 10 when the Lord speaks in the first person and says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Think about it. Be still. This is a call for those who are involved in the war to stop fighting and to be still. The word still here is a Hebrew translation of the word rapa, and it means to slacken, to let down, to cease. This word means to not drop, not be weak, not be faint. But it means that if two people are fighting, then someone comes alone and separates them and makes them drop their weapons. It is only after fighting, that fighting has stopped, that the warriors can acknowledge their true trust in God. 
we often interpret this command to be still, to be quiet in God's presence. It is only when we are quiet and when we can say to one another, let the will of the Lord be done. Why quietness is certainly helpful, this phrase means to stop frantic activity, to let go and to let God to be still, for if God's people would be still, it would mean that they are looking for him to intercede on their behalf. Exodus 14 and 13 says, and Moses said to the people, I love this, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. It goes on and says, know that I am God. It means to know that he is God is to properly ascertain what we are seeing and then acknowledge who he is. To know that he is, I am. Acknowledging God is always going to impact our stillness. We know that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's holy. He's sovereign. He's faithful. He's infinite. He's good, and he is gracious. He is God all by himself. Acknowledging God, when you and I acknowledge God, we imply that we can trust him and that we are surrendered to his plan and surrendered to his will. When the verse goes on and it says, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted among the earth, it was the tempting of the nations in Israel. Israel would align themselves with these foreign powers instead of staying steadfast and trusting God who is exalted. Ultimately, God wins. Ultimately, God brings peace. We see during Isaiah's time that Judah was looking for help from the Egyptians, even though God warned them that they did not need Judean help. They did not need the might of Egypt. They needed to rely on the Lord. Isaiah 30, 15 says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. When we are still and when we surrender to the Lord, we find peace even when the earth gives away even when mountains fall, even when the nations go into an uproar, even when human kingdoms fail, even when life is overwhelming, we can recognize that God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in the time of trouble. And because of that, we can run to him. We can lay down our weapons. We can fall into his awaiting arms. We can acknowledge that he is God and he is exalted among the earth. We can be still and know that he is God. Paul's role as a prophet here in the line of Jesus and with his apostles is further highlighted because of his likeness to Jesus. We see that the likeness is his divine compulsion to follow the direction 
of the Spirit. We see that this likeness is shown in his devotion to teach and suffer in torment for the name of Jesus. We see that in this likeness, we see the fact that Paul is willing to deny his own will and follow the will of the Lord by letting the will of the Lord be done unto him. Divine guidance teaches us how to respond to warnings and impending dangers, knowing that God has the ability to take care of it all. All things work together for the good, for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose. So as we see this morning in the passage that the Lord has placed before us, we see a model of Christian life, a model that is challenging because it's a model that says, let the Lord's will be done in my life. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We've praised you with the words of asking you to order our steps. Now, Lord, let us come to the place where the rubber meets the road and that we surrender to you and allow you to direct every aspect of our lives. Let us be able to say with those who said it of Paul, let the will of the Lord be done in our life. It's in the precious name of your son, and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all, and all God's children said amen. So we recognize here as we look at our passage this morning, looking at Acts 21 and 1, when they had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause. This is an island in the Aegean Sea, and they're not far from their next day's travel to Rose, and then from there to Pat Era. This journey really followed, if you looked at the maps, a conventional uh, pattern that small ships in antiquity would always use. Because if you had a small ship, you would want to hug the coastline as much as possible so you could be able to pull in and out of the port each night when the winds died down. I don't know if you've ever been to South Carolina. You can see from South Carolina, really, all the way to Boston, and then from South Carolina all the way down to Miami. It's called the Intercoastal Waterway. And if you have a small boat, like a pontoon boat, it's on the other side of the Atlantic. It's not in the Sound, but it's on the other side of the Atlantic, where you can go all the way to Boston and go all the way to Miami without being in the Atlantic Ocean and having to deal with the turbulence that follows being in that larger body of water. The same thing is happening here. So they're able to go in and out of ports each and every night. And look at verse 2. Having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, they went aboard and set sail. And this ship was a larger ship because it's going all the way to Phoenicia and it's about 400 miles. So they're going through the Mediterranean Sea now. They're going to a place that had been annexed by Rome back in 64 BC. Verse 3 says, And when they had come into the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, they sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Luke now starts to name their destinations. 
and he tells us that they're going to unload this cargo, which may explain somewhat why they stayed here longer than they did in any other port. But now as we come to the heart of the message here, we see that even coming from chapter 20, we see that Paul was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem. Why was Paul in a hurry to reach Jerusalem? Acts 20, 16b tells us, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He was trying to make it to Jerusalem so he could celebrate Pentecost. They had made good time on their journey. They were delighted to socialize and fellowship with these Christians in Tyra. In fact, it says in 21.4a, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And there they saw the very Spirit of God become active on the very hearts and souls of those present. 21.4b says, And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. You see, the very Holy Spirit of God revealed to them that there were dangers, trials, and tribulations that lie ahead for Paul if he was to continue on his mission. You see, when the Lord sends you on a mission, he doesn't necessarily tell you the methodology of the mission. He doesn't tell you everything that the mission might encompass. He just says, go, and you need to go. Now, some have seen this as some spirit-directed urging for these people to supersede what the spirit has already told him back in 20 and tell him not to go. I can't see that because that conflicts with the spirit-directed revelation that was already given to him to visit Jerusalem, that he would have to suffer in this process. And if you go all the way back to verse chapter, yeah, chapter 9, he tells them when he tells, he sends Ananias to speak to Paul and take away his blindness, you need to go to him because he will suffer much for my kingdom. So we recognize this is the call is still the call. The mission is still the mission. And Paul is mission minded. Now we see through Acts three times that the spirit speaks to him in these, well, three times almost in Acts 20 through 21. Acts 20, 22 through 24. Look what he says. And behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that my imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor pressure to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord. Stop right there. Is he concerned about himself his man, his life, or is he concerned about his mission? That I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Look at Acts 21 and 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
And then later on in Acts 21, 10 and 14, we see the same thing repeated. But here, the Spirit is showing that God's will was him to go to Jerusalem and that the Lord's will must be done through his ministry, through his body, and through whatever method God had decided to use him. Even though his friends were desperately seeking his safety in the light of unknown and a dangerous future, Paul understood that as Christians, there's only one way to face a fearful future and to face the future is to do it with humility. Look at 1 Peter 5 and 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted above the nations. If God push you up, no one can take you down. Regardless of the danger, the trial, the tribulation, God is going to be victorious in whatever he does. And we see here that if we're going to face a fearful future, we are instructed to take the initiative to humble ourselves before a holy God. Humility requires that we lay ourselves low before God, that we become insignificant, we become weak before God because God loves the humble. He lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. Psalm 147 and 6, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Psalm 149 and 4, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is what? Wisdom. Therefore, James 4 and 6, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A.W. Toller once said, humility is as scarce as an ambino robin. You see, we must desperately seek humility before a holy God. And don't mistake this. Desperation is not bad in all cases if we're desperate for God. Because our holy God will create in our lives times of desperation to draw us closer to him. When we are desperate enough, we will what? Listen and comply. Remember the desperation for God and it will humble us. It's a winning combination. Desperation for God and humility. We see his friends and they're aware of the fears and maybe the implications that will come as he travels to Jerusalem. But Paul is not moved by what they're saying, he still is on mission and he still decides to go to Jerusalem. Look at 21.5, first part of the verse here. When our day there was ended, we departed and we went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. So they led them until they were outside the city, and then one half got on the boat, the rest stayed. It was a short time fellowshipping and loving upon one another. 
the whole presence of families showed that they had gathered to pray for Paul and his companions, and they were able to share their farewells on the beach. They had great support and adoration for Paul. They were encouraging him. And this is really, when you look at it, a touching scene. Look at the 21, 5, B, and 6. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said, I farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So they're getting to the point, they're not there yet, that they are, are going to be satisfied to let the will of the Lord be done concerning his ministry. What does Paul do? He continues toward his march to Jerusalem, going to Caesarea and other places, going to Tyra. He greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. He comes to this island Ptolemaeus, it's a strong fortress, a great trade center, 30 miles from Tyra. It's a a Roman colony that has been given its freedom, and it was under the authority of the emperor Claudius. We look back at Acts 11, 19, look what he says. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen's travel as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. We see great hospitality here because they are welcoming the Jews and Gentiles, those who are enthralled with the name of Jesus. And hospitality was very important in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's very important in our lives as Christians. Hebrews 13 and 2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. What does Jesus say? What you do for the least of these, when you give a cup of cold water to the least of these, you have served me. When you go and visit those in prison, you have served me. That's hospitality. 1 Peter 4 9, show hospitality with one another without what? Grumbling. If it's grumbling, it's no longer hospitality. It's obligation. If I'm going to do something for you, I'm doing it because I want to. I love you. I care for you. If I have to add grumbling into it, then it becomes an obligation. It becomes a chore. That's not what God wants. So we see here that he brings back up, Luke brings back up Philip when he says he entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. When he makes that reference, one of the seven, he's talking about one of the seven back in Acts 6 when they became the diaconate. So he was one of those that were included in there. And now we see where Philip the Evangelist had been preaching the gospel to all the towns until he had reached Caesarea. And being known as an evangelist, he adapted certain characteristics. Look at 2 Timothy 4 and 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
Sober-mindedness is something that all Christians are called to be, that we might see the plank in our eye before we comment on the splendor in yours, that we might be willing and trusting in the Lord enough to suffer for his sake, to do the work of the evangelist, to speak of the good news about Christ Jesus, and to fulfill our ministry by letting everyone know the grace and the goodness of God. Philip was evangelizing, seeking to be one of the harvesters that brings in the harvest for the Lord. He had settled in Caesarea to concentrate on this important work and to raise a family. And he'd build up a strong community there. But there's something here that is said. It seems like a throwaway statement by uh, Luke when he speaks about Philip having four daughters and them prophesizing. But if you look closely, you see that this refers back to Joel. Joel 2, 28 through 29. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit, capital S, on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old man shall dream dreams. Your young man shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. He gave them ability for that moment to utter forth and declare things that could only be known by revelation. So the meeting with Philip provided for Paul and Luke a unique opportunity to consult with one another. And then as we look at verse 10, we see once again, the Lord sends another prophetic voice to speak to the very heart of Paul. Verse 10 says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. Now, Agabus was a Gentile, and he lived in Caesarea, which really wasn't considered part of Judea from an ethnic sense. He obviously had an understanding through the Lord, uh, had a great awareness of all the tensions that were simmering in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has spoke to him concerning specifically the ministry of Paul as Paul is currently en route to Jerusalem. When we look for more information about Agabus, we have to look at some extra-biblical traditions to recognize he was a resident once of Jerusalem. He was part of the 70 disciples commissioned to preach the gospel in the earlier part of the book of Luke. He was one of the 12 apostles who was there that night in the upper room at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit had given him a gift of prophecy. And the Bible shows he had correctly predicted a severe famine that occurred in the time of the emperor Claudius. So now this prophet comes and he shares something with Paul and the audience that's around him. Look at 2111a. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. This concept of a belt here 
it's just a long piece of cloth that they would have wrapped around their waist. And when you take a deeper look into what Agabus was doing here, you see that it's really symbolic of what the prophet Jeremiah did back in Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. Go with me for a moment back to Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. See if you can see the similarities here. Thus says the Lord to me, go and buy a linen lion cloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in the water. So I bought the lion cloth according to the word of the Lord and I put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time. Take the lion cloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, arise and go to Euphrates and take it from there, the lion cloth that I commanded you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates and I dug and I looked for the lion cloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the lion cloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the greater pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, have gone after other gods to serve and to worship them, shall be like this lion cloth, which is good for nothing. For as a lion cloth clings to the waist of a man, so I make the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. You see here, in the case of Jeremiah, these people's pride and their sin clung to them like an intimate garment. And in Jerusalem, the pride and the sins of those people that Paul is going to minister to, They want to bind his efforts to deliver them over to a good and gracious God by going after a false God. It goes on to say in our text, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Think about the echoes here of the example of the ministry of Jesus and how Paul is facing some of the same challenges. Because if you want to reign with Christ, you have to be willing to do what? Suffer with him. Luke 9, 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised Luke 9:44 Let these words sink into your eyes the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of man Luke 18:32 For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon Are you are you seeing the implication here that 
Jesus is a model for this model disciples behavior and fellowship and ability to deal with severe persecution because he recognizes if I follow Christ, I have to follow in the way that Christ was treated. Why is it that we have a Christianity now that tells us that we are supposed to live better than Christ ever lived on earth? Is that not what Osteen and Oprah are telling us? Did Jesus not say when someone wanted to follow him, you need to think about this, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was buried in a barred tomb. Look at uh, Philippians 3.10. And this is a heart of what, this is a heart of what Paul desired. And this really should be the heart of what we desire as followers of Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. He doesn't want just one. He wants both and. He doesn't want either or. He wants the power that comes from the resurrection, but that only comes through the sharing of his suffering. You can't resurrect until you die. You have to die to self. Self Self-centeredness, self-desire, self-focus. We see Agabus here as he pleads with the audience for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But see, Paul doesn't shrink from the suffering that is before him because he has realized something that we must realize as Christians is that suffering has a divine purpose. Can you say that? Suffering has a divine purpose. You think I'm lying? Look at Romans 5. One through five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He shows us here that we, it is settled. We have been justified. We are at peace with God. Peace because we're no longer enemies of God because we're accepted his son, Jesus Christ. And as we grow in grace, we develop what is called the peace of God, which what? Surpasses all understanding. But that's not the good part of this verse. It doesn't get good till you get to three. Now look at what three says. Not only that, so he's talking about everything that you receive in one and two, that's good, but not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. You would not be who you are in Christ if you didn't go through what you went through. 
That's what shaped you. That's what molded you. That's why he allowed it into your life. He didn't come to harm you. He came to change you and make you over into his image. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't know if this what was bound up in the hearts of those that were trying to convince and urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But we look at verse 12, it says, when they had heard the testimony of Agabus, when they heard this, we the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. They were moved by loving concern for Paul's welfare. They were moved by the force of the prediction that the prophet had given. But without saying it, do you see that Paul's focus and dedication to his ministry rebuked these people the same way Jesus rebuked Peter back in Mark? Look at Mark 8, 31 and 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, he, personal pronoun refers to Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. Now look, think about the audacity of this whole move here. Peter takes Jesus aside. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think it goes without saying here that Paul respected the genuine concerns of his friends but he understood that his friends were not setting their minds on the things of God. They were setting their minds on the things of man. And he continued on his journey because he knew that suffering was the only way to get to freedom. Look what he says to them in 2113a. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. That weeping was having an effect on his heart because it was having an emotional appeal. But he held on to his purpose. Why? Because he trusted in Jesus. And then he makes this statement in 2113b. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. So what is he saying? He's saying, I'm totally sold out for Christ. 
Christ is my all in all. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for the Lord is with me. His rod and his staff, they protect me. He prepares a table in in the midst of my enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And none of that is in Scripture. That's in Him. That's why it's so important for you to get this in you. Because if you get this in you, it can find that citation quicker than you can on your iPhone. And it'll come up exactly when you need it. And whatever translation works best for you. But you got to You can't tap into it if it's not in you. You got to eat. You got to eat the word of the Lord, consume it, and see that it is good, that it's sweet as a honeycomb. So what happens here? They're just overwhelmed by the faithfulness of Paul, and they see that they cannot persuade him So they throw up their hands and they said what they should have said in the beginning. 14B, let the will of the Lord be done. They see his determination to follow in the steps of Jesus, his master, and to honor the name of Jesus by accepting the will of God. The very words of Christ in his heart. What does Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. Whatever God wills is my will. It's so important that Luke uses here not the word "phileo," which means your will, but he uses "phelema," which means the will of God, the purpose and command of God that Paul was absolutely resolutely set to go to Jerusalem, to submit to the will of God, to have an impact on those who were going to be ministered to because Christ has sent him. Acts 9, 15 through 16 gives you a preview of the ministry that uh, Paul would have when he was going from Saul to Paul and still blinded by the light that knocked him off his high horse on that Damascus road. And Jesus is speaking to Ananias and telling him to go and to touch him and to heal him. And the word said this, but the, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Man, what a recruiting statement. I'm going to heal you of your blindness, knock you off your horse, tell you that I'm healing you so you can suffer for my name and get with it. We serve a loving and reasonable and unreasonable God. Amen. 
that he has his reasons and he knows exactly what must take place. So we see here as he comes to the completion of his ministry, he still has to go and march, give a great defense in Jerusalem. He's not killed there for the Lord controls what time that we come to meet him in the flesh. But he's going so that he might bring to both Jew and Gentile a ministry that will break down the barriers between Jew and Gentile. This is the ministry that is called in Ephesians and Galatians, a mystery of the gospel, the mystery, or rather the ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, therefore, who, you know, therefore, you always have to need to see what that is there for, right? We are ambassadors for Christ. Now, if we're ambassadors for Christ, do we get to take, bring our own uh, agenda from the kingdom department of state? No. If you're ambassador, you, the quickest way, that's Andrew Young, the quickest way, they get fired from being an ambassador is to do what the government has told you not to do, to say what the president has told you not to utter. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we see here that Paul's persecution really represents the theological claim that pushed him and drove him deeper and deeper into the ministry that resurrection hope of Israel and teaching that is only fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Acts 23 and 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brother, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He understood that he was suffering for preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the name of Jesus Christ. And he took every opportunity. Then we look down in 33 and we see where he gets up and he got ready to go to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea came with him. And then they found a place to stay at Nason's home when they arrived. But we see something here that 
God asked Paul, as he's asking each and every one of us, for a life of full surrender. A life of full surrender to God will always have its challenges, will always have its difficulties, will always have its perceived, and I'm saying it perceived because they're not real, its perceived setbacks. It will become overwhelming at times, and we will be tempted to retreat. But we must never leave the presence of God, but remain to him close at all times. Andrew Murray once said, what has God promised you and what can God do to fill a vessel that is absolutely surrendered to him? Surrendering to God is abandoning all that we have and receiving that all God possesses. If you want to be filled, you have to be emptied. You have to empty what is earthly in you because it can only take you so far and be filled with what's in him. Remember something. Our God is incredibly attractive, attractive to weakness. Our God is incredibly attracted to weakness. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. The words of Paul. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So to keep from becoming Conceded, though God was speaking in his life broadly and he was hearing and he was amazed with the fact that God would share such things with him. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming what? Conceited. Three times. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, I'm weak and I want to be weaker. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God is attracted to weakness. Get up early, get with God, get weak, and get delivered. Let us pray. Dear Lord, help us to eradicate all the negative emotions that seek to enslave our hearts and help us to maintain victory over all of Satan's temptations. Help us to understand that you are our strength, you are our strong tower, you are our stability. Keep us, O Lord, from withdrawing from others and acting unloving and unkind. Help us to respond in the spirit that we are able to deal with our present pain and that it doesn't consume us or control us. Help us to meet the unmet needs and the unhealed hurts of others. 
And let us witness your grace, O Lord, in all of our interactions on this earth. Help us and allow us to do all of this and allow you to have your will done in our lives. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said amen.